Book twenty, chapters twenty through twenty five of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo. Book twenty two, chapter twenty. Far be it from us to fear that the omnipotence of the Creator cannot, for the resuscitation and reanimation of our bodies, recall all the portions which have been consumed by beasts, or fire, or have been dissolved into dust or ashes, or have decomposed into water, or evaporated into the air. Far from us be the thought that anything which escapes our observation in any most hidden recess of nature either evades the knowledge or transcends the power of the Creator of all things. Cicero, the great authority of our adversaries, wishing to define God as accurately as possible, says, God is a mind free and independent, without materiality, perceiving and moving all things, and itself endowed with eternal movement. This he found in the systems of the greatest philosophers. Let me ask, then, in their own language, how anything can either lie hid from him who perceives all things, or irrevocably escape him who moves all things. This leads me to reply to that question which seems the most difficult of all. To whom in the resurrection will belong the flesh of a dead man which has become the flesh of a living man? For if some one, famishing for want and pressed with hunger, use human flesh as food, an extremity not unknown, as both ancient history and the unhappy experience of our own days have taught us, can it be contended with any show of reason that all the flesh eaten has been evacuated, and that none of it has been assimilated to the substance of the eater, though the very emaciation which existed before, and has now disappeared, sufficiently indicates what large deficiencies have been filled up with this food? But I have already made some remarks which will suffice for the solution of this difficulty also. For all the flesh which hunger has consumed finds its way into the air by evaporation, whence, as we have said, God Almighty can recall it. That flesh, therefore, shall be restored to the man in whom it first became human flesh. For it must be looked upon as borrowed by the other person, and, like a pecuniary loan, must be returned to the lender. His own flesh, however, which he lost by famine, shall be restored to him by him who can recover even what has evaporated. And, though it had been absolutely annihilated, so that no part of its substance remained in any secret spot of nature, the Almighty could restore it by such means as he saw fit. For this sentence, uttered by the truth, not a hair of your head shall perish, forbids us to suppose that though no hair of a man's head can perish, yet the large portions of his flesh, eaten and consumed by the famishing, can perish. 
from all that we have thus considered and discussed with such poor ability as we can command we gather this conclusion that in the resurrection of the flesh the body shall be of that size which it either had attained or should have attained in the flower of its youth and shall enjoy the beauty that arises from preserving symmetry and proportion in all its members and it is reasonable to suppose that for the preservation of this beauty any part of the body's substance which if placed in one spot would produce a deformity shall be distributed through the whole of it so that neither any part nor the symmetry of the whole may be lost but only the general stature of the body somewhat increased by the distribution in all the parts of that which in one place would have been unsightly or if it is contended that each will rise with the same stature as that of the body he died in we shall not obstinately dispute this provided only there be no deformity no infirmity no languor no corruption nothing of any kind which would ill become that kingdom in which the children of the resurrection and of the promise shall be equal to the angels of god if not in body and age at least in happiness chapter twenty one whatever therefore has been taken from the body either during life or after death shall be restored to it and in conjunction with what has remained in the grave shall rise again transformed from the oldness of the animal body into the newness of the spiritual body and clothed in incorruption and immortality but even though the body has been all quite ground to powder by some severe accident or by the ruthlessness of enemies and though it has been so diligently scattered to the winds or into the water that there is no trace of it left yet it shall not be beyond the omnipotence of the creator no not a hair of its head shall perish the flesh shall then be spiritual and subject to the spirit but still flesh not spirit as the spirit itself when subject to the flesh was fleshly but still spirit and not flesh and of this we have experimental proof in the deformity of our penal condition for those persons were carnal not in a fleshly but in a spiritual way to whom the apostle said i could not speak to you as unto spiritual but as unto carnal and a man is in this life spiritual in such a way that he is yet carnal with respect to his body and sees another law in his members warring against the law of his mind but even in his body he will be spiritual when the same flesh shall have had that resurrection of which these words speak it is sown an animal body it shall rise a spiritual body but what this spiritual body shall be and how great its grace i fear it were but rash to pronounce seeing that we have as yet no experience of it nevertheless since it is fit that the joyfulness of our hope should utter itself and so show forth god's praise and since it was from the profoundest sentiment of ardent and holy love that the psalmist cried o lord i have loved the beauty of thy house 
we may, with God's help, speak of the gifts he lavishes on men, good and bad alike, in this most wretched life, and may do our best to conjecture the great glory of that state which we cannot worthily speak of, because we have not yet experienced it. For I say nothing of the time when God made man upright, I say nothing of the happy life of the man and his wife in the fruitful garden, since it was so short that none of their children experienced it. I speak only of this life which we know, and in which we now are, from the temptations of which we cannot escape so long as we are in it, no matter what progress we make, for it is all temptation, and I ask, who can describe the tokens of God's goodness that are extended to the human race, even in this life? CHAPTER Twenty Two that the whole human race has been condemned in its first origin this life itself if life it is to be called bears witness by the host of cruel ills with which it is filled is not this proved by the profound and dreadful ignorance which produces all the errors that enfold the children of adam and from which no man can be delivered without toil pain and fear is it not proved by his love of so many vain and hurtful things which produces gnawing cares disquiet griefs fears wild joys quarrels lawsuits wars treasons angers hatreds deceit flattery fraud theft robbery perfidy pride ambition envy murders parricides cruelty ferocity wickedness luxury insolence impudence shamelessness fornications adulteries incests and the numberless uncleannesses and unnatural acts of both sexes which it is shameful so much as to mention sacrileges heresies blasphemies perjuries oppression of the innocent calumnies plots falsehoods false witnessings unrighteous judgments violent deeds plunderings and whatever similar wickedness has found its way into the lives of men though it cannot find its way into the conception of pure minds these are indeed the crimes of wicked men yet they spring from that root of error and misplaced love which is born with every son of adam for who is there that has not observed with what profound ignorance manifesting itself even in infancy and with what superfluity of foolish desires beginning to appear in boyhood man comes into this life so that were he left to live as he pleased and to do whatever he pleased he would plunge into all or certainly into many of those crimes and iniquities which i mentioned and could not mention but because God does not wholly desert those whom he condemns, nor shuts up in his anger his tender mercies, the human race is restrained by law and instruction, which keep guard against the ignorance that besets us, and oppose the assaults of vice, but are themselves full of labor and sorrow. For what mean those multifarious threats which are used to restrain the folly of children? What mean pedagogues, masters, the birch, the strap, the cane, the schooling which Scripture says must be given a child, 
beating him on the sides, lest he wax stubborn, and it be hardly possible or not possible at all to subdue him. Why all these punishments, save to overcome ignorance and bridle evil desires, these evils with which we come into the world? For why is it that we remember with difficulty, and without difficulty, forget, learn with difficulty, and without difficulty remain ignorant, are diligent with difficulty, and without difficulty are indolent? Does not this show what vitiated nature inclines and tends to by its own weight, and what succor it needs if it is to be delivered? Inactivity, sloth, laziness, negligence are vices which shun labor, since labor, though useful, is itself a punishment. But besides the punishments of childhood, without which there would be no learning of what the parents wish, and the parents rarely wish anything useful to be taught, who can describe, who can conceive the number and severity of the punishments which afflict the human race, pains which are not only the accompaniment of the wickedness of godless men, but are a part of the human condition and the common misery, what fear and what grief are caused by bereavement and mourning, by losses and condemnations, by fraud and falsehood, by false suspicions, and all the crimes and wicked deeds of other men. For at their hands we suffer robbery, captivity, chains, imprisonment, exile, torture, mutilation, loss of sight, the violation of chastity to satisfy the lust of the oppressor, and many other dreadful evils. What numberless casualties threaten our bodies from without, extremes of heat and cold, storms, floods, inundations, lightning, thunder, hail, earthquakes, houses falling, or from the stumbling or shying or vice of horses, from countless poisons in fruits, water, air, animals, from the painful or even deadly bites of wild animals, from the madness which a mad dog communicates, so that even the animal which of all others is most gentle and friendly to its own master becomes an object of intenser fear than a lion or dragon, and the man whom it has by chance infected with this pestilential contagion becomes so rabid that his parents, wife, children dread him more than any wild beast. What disasters are suffered by those who travel by land or sea? What man can go out of his own house without being exposed on all hands to unforeseen accidents? Returning home sound in limb, he slips on his own doorstep, breaks his leg, and never recovers. What can seem safer than a man sitting in his chair? Eli the priest fell from his, and broke his neck. How many accidents do farmers, or rather all men, fear that the crops may suffer from the weather, or the soil, or the ravages of destructive animals? Commonly they feel safe when the crops are gathered and housed. Yet, to my certain knowledge, sudden floods have driven the laborers away, and swept the barns clean of the finest harvest. Is innocence a sufficient protection against the various assaults of demons? 
that no man might think so, even baptized infants, who are certainly unsurpassed in innocence, are sometimes so tormented, that God, who permits it, teaches us hereby to bewail the calamities of this life, and to desire the felicity of the life to come. As to bodily diseases, they are so numerous, that they cannot be all contained even in medical books and in very many, or almost all of them, the cures and remedies are themselves tortures, so that men are delivered from a pain that destroys, by a cure that pains. Has not the madness of thirst driven men to drink human urine, and even their own? Has not hunger driven men to eat human flesh, and that the flesh not of bodies found dead, but of bodies slain for the purpose? Have not the fierce pangs of famine driven mothers to eat their own children, incredibly savage as it seems? In fine, sleep itself, which is justly called repose, how little of repose there sometimes is in it, when disturbed with dreams and visions, and with what terror is the wretched mind overwhelmed by the appearances of things which are so presented, and which, as it were, so stand out before the senses, that we cannot distinguish them from realities. How wretchedly do false appearances distract men in certain diseases! With what astonishing variety of appearances are even healthy men sometimes deceived by evil spirits, who produce these delusions for the sake of perplexing the senses of their victims, if they cannot succeed in seducing them to their side? From this hell upon earth there is no escape save through the grace of the Saviour Christ, our God and Lord. The very name Jesus shows this, for it means Saviour, and he saves us especially from passing out of this life into a more wretched and eternal state, which is rather a death than a life. For in this life, though holy men and holy pursuits afford us great consolations, yet the blessings which men crave are not invariably bestowed upon them, lest religion should be cultivated for the sake of these temporal advantages, while it ought rather to be cultivated for the sake of that other life from which all evil is excluded. Therefore also does grace aid good men in the midst of present calamities, so that they are enabled to endure them with a constancy proportioned to their faith. The world's sages affirm that philosophy contributes something to this, that philosophy which, according to Cicero, the gods have bestowed in its purity only on a few men. They have never given, he says, nor can ever give, a greater gift to men so that even those against whom we are disputing have been compelled to acknowledge in some fashion that the grace of God is necessary for the acquisition not indeed of any philosophy, but of the true philosophy. And if the true philosophy, this sole support against the miseries of this life, has been given by heaven only to a few, it sufficiently appears from this that the human race has been condemned to pay this penalty of wretchedness. And as, according to their acknowledgment, no greater gift has been bestowed by God, so it must be believed that it could be given only by that God whom they themselves recognize as greater than all the gods they worship. Chapter 23 
but irrespective of the miseries which in this life are common to the good and bad the righteous undergo labours peculiar to themselves in so far as they make war upon their vices and are involved in the temptations and perils of such a contest for though sometimes more violent and at other times slacker yet without intermission does the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that we cannot do the things we would and extirpate all lust but can only refuse consent to it as god gives us ability and so keep it under vigilantly keeping watch lest a semblance of truth deceive us lest a subtle discourse blind us lest error involve us in darkness lest we should take good for evil or evil for good lest fear should hinder us from doing what we ought or desire precipitate us into doing what we ought not lest the sun go down upon our wrath lest hatred provoke us to render evil for evil lest unseemly or immoderate grief consume us lest an ungrateful disposition make us slow to recognize benefits received lest calumnies fret our conscience lest rash suspicion on our part deceive us regarding a friend or false suspicion of us on the part of others give us too much uneasiness lest sin reign in our mortal body to obey its desires lest our members be used as the instruments of unrighteousness lest the eye follow lust lest thirst for revenge carry us away lest sight or thought dwell too long on some evil thing which gives us pleasure lest wicked or indecent language be willingly listened to lest we do what is pleasant but unlawful and lest in this warfare filled so abundantly with toil and peril we either hope to secure victory by our own strength or attribute it when secured to our own strength and not to his grace of whom the apostle says thanks be unto god who giveth us the victory through our lord jesus christ and in another place he says in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us but yet we are to know this that however valorously we resist our vices and however successful we are in overcoming them yet as long as we are in this body we have always reason to say to god forgive us our debts but in that kingdom where we shall dwell for ever clothed in immortal bodies we shall no longer have either conflicts or debts as indeed we should not have had at any time or in any condition had our nature continued upright as it was created consequently even this our conflict in which we are exposed to peril and from which we hope to be delivered by a final victory belongs to the ills of this life which is proved by the witness of so many grave evils to be a life under condemnation chapter twenty four but we must now contemplate the rich and countless blessings with which the goodness of god who cares for all he has created has filled this very misery of the human race which reflects his retributive justice that first blessing which he pronounced before the fall when he said increase and multiply and replenish the earth 
he did not inhibit after man had sinned, but the fecundity originally bestowed remained in the condemned stock, and the vice of sin, which has involved us in the necessity of dying, has yet not deprived us of that wonderful power of seed, or rather of that still more marvellous power by which seed is produced, and which seems to be, as it were, inwrought and inwoven in the human body. But in this river, as I may call it, or torrent, of the human race, both elements are carried along together, both the evil which is derived from him who begets, and the good which is bestowed by him who creates us. In the original evil there are two things, sin and punishment. In the original good there are two other things, propagation and conformation. But of the evils, of which the one, sin, arose from our audacity, and the other, punishment, from God's judgment, we have already said as much as suits our present purpose. I mean now to speak of the blessings which God has conferred, or still confers, upon our nature, vitiated and condemned as it is. For in condemning it he did not withdraw all that he had given it, else it had been annihilated. Neither did he, in penally subjecting it to the devil, remove it beyond his own power. For not even the devil himself is outside of God's government, since the devil's nature subsists only by the supreme Creator, who gives being to all that in any form exists. Of these two blessings, then, which we have said flow from God's goodness, as from a fountain, towards our nature, vitiated by sin, and condemned to punishment, the one, propagation, was conferred by God's benediction when he made those first works, from which he rested on the seventh day. But the other, conformation, is conferred in that work of his, wherein he worketh hitherto. For were he to withdraw his efficacious power from things, they should neither be able to go on and complete the periods assigned to their measured movements, nor should they even continue in possession of that nature they were created in. God then so created man that he gave him what we may call fertility, whereby he might propagate other men, giving them a congenital capacity to propagate their kind, but not imposing on them any necessity to do so. This capacity God withdraws at pleasure from individuals, making them barren, but from the whole race he has not withdrawn the blessing of propagation once conferred. But though not withdrawn on account of sin, this power of propagation is not what it would have been had there been no sin. For since man placed in honour fell, he has become like the beasts, and generates as they do, though the little spark of reason which was the image of God in him has not been quite quenched. But if conformation were not added to propagation, there would be no reproduction of one's kind. For even though there were no such thing as copulation, and God wished to fill the earth with human inhabitants, he might create all these, as he created one, without the help of human generation. And indeed, even as it is, those who copulate can generate nothing save by the creative energy of God." 
as therefore in respect of that spiritual growth whereby a man is formed to piety and righteousness the apostle says neither is he that planteth anything neither he that watereth but god that giveth the increase so also it must be said that it is not he that generates that is anything but god that giveth the essential form that it is not the mother who carries and nurses the fruit of her womb that is anything but god that giveth the increase for he alone by that energy wherewith he worketh hitherto causes the seed to develop and to evolve from certain secret and invisible folds into the visible forms of beauty which we see he alone coupling and connecting in some wonderful fashion the spiritual and corporeal natures the one to command the other to obey makes a living being and this work of his is so great and wonderful that not only man who is a rational animal and consequently more excellent than all other animals of the earth but even the most diminutive insect cannot be considered attentively without astonishment and without praising the creator it is he then who has given to the human soul a mind in which reason and understanding lie as it were asleep during infancy and as if they were not destined however to be awakened and exercised as years increase so as to become capable of knowledge and of receiving instruction fit to understand what is true and to love what is good it is by this capacity the soul drinks in wisdom and becomes endowed with those virtues by which in prudence fortitude temperance and righteousness it makes war upon error and the other inborn vices and conquers them by fixing its desires upon no other object than the supreme and unchangeable good and even though this be not uniformly the result yet who can competently utter or even conceive the grandeur of this work of the almighty and the unspeakable boon he has conferred upon our rational nature by giving us even the capacity of such attainment for over and above those arts which are called virtues and which teach us how we may spend our life well and attain to endless happiness arts which are given to the children of the promise and the kingdom by the sole grace of god which is in christ has not the genius of man invented and applied countless astonishing arts partly the result of necessity partly the result of exuberant invention so that this vigour of mind which is so active in the discovery not merely of superfluous but even of dangerous and destructive things betokens an inexhaustible wealth in the nature which can invent learn or employ such arts what wonderful one might say stupefying advances has human industry made in the arts of weaving and building of agriculture and navigation with what endless variety are designs in pottery painting and sculpture produced and with what skill executed what wonderful spectacles are exhibited in the theatres which those who have not seen them cannot credit 
how skilful the contrivances for catching, killing, or taming wild beasts, and for the injury of men also, how many kinds of poisons, weapons, engines of destruction have been invented, while for the preservation or restoration of health the appliances and remedies are infinite. To provoke appetite and please the palate, what a variety of seasonings have been concocted! To express and gain entrance for thoughts, what a multitude and variety of signs there are, among which speaking and writing hold the first place! What ornaments has eloquence at command to delight the mind? What wealth of song is there to captivate the ear? How many musical instruments and strains of harmony have been devised? What skill has been attained in measures and numbers? With what sagacity have the movements and connections of the stars been discovered? Who could tell the thought that has been spent upon nature, even though, despairing of recounting it in detail, he endeavoured only to give a general view of it? In fine, even the defence of errors and misapprehensions which has illustrated the genius of heretics and philosophers cannot be sufficiently declared. For at present it is the nature of the human mind which adorns this mortal life which we are extolling, and not the faith and the way of truth which lead to immortality. And since this great nature has certainly been created by the true and supreme God, who administers all things he has made with absolute power and justice, it could never have fallen into these miseries, nor have gone out of them to miseries eternal, saving only those who are redeemed, had not an exceeding great sin been found in the first man from whom the rest have sprung. Moreover, even in the body, though it dies like that of the beasts, and is in many ways weaker than theirs, what goodness of God, what providence of the great Creator, is apparent! The organs of sense, and the rest of the members, are not they so placed, the appearance, and form, and stature of the body as a whole, is it not so fashioned as to indicate that it was made for the service of a reasonable soul? Man has not been created stooping towards the earth like the irrational animals, but his bodily form, erect and looking heavenwards, admonishes him to mind the things that are above. Then the marvellous nimbleness which has been given to the tongue and the hands, fitting them to speak and write, and execute so many duties, and practice so many arts, does it not prove the excellence of the soul for which such an assistant was provided? And even apart from its adaptation to the work required of it, there is such a symmetry in its various parts, and so beautiful a proportion maintained, that one is at a loss to decide whether, in creating the body, greater regard was paid to utility or to beauty. Assuredly no part of the body has been created for the sake of utility which does not also contribute something to its beauty. 
and this would be all the more apparent if we knew more precisely how all its parts are connected and adapted to one another, and were not limited in our observations to what appears on the surface. For as to what is covered up and hidden from our view, the intricate web of veins and nerves, the vital parts of all that lies under the skin, no one can discover it. For although, with a cruel zeal for science, some medical men, who are called anatomists, have dissected the bodies of the dead, and sometimes even of sick persons who died under their knives, and have inhumanly pried into the secrets of the human body to learn the nature of the disease, and its exact seat, and how it might be cured, yet those relations of which I speak, and which form the concord, or, as the Greeks call it, harmony of the whole body, outside and in, as of some instrument, no one has been able to discover, because no one has been audacious enough to seek for them. But if these could be known, then even the inward parts, which seem to have no beauty, would so delight us with their exquisite fitness, as to afford a profounder satisfaction to the mind, and the eyes are but its ministers, than the obvious beauty which gratifies the eye. There are some things, too, which have such a place in the body, that they obviously serve no useful purpose, but are solely for beauty, as, for example, the teats on a man's breast, or the beard on his face. For that this is for ornament, and not for protection, is proved by the bare faces of women, who ought rather, as the weaker sex, to enjoy such a defence. If, therefore, of all those members which are exposed to our view, there is certainly not one in which beauty is sacrificed to utility, while there are some which serve no purpose but only beauty, I think it can readily be concluded that in the creation of the human body comeliness was more regarded than necessity. In truth, necessity is a transitory thing, and the time is coming when we shall enjoy one another's beauty without any lust, a condition which will specially redound to the praise of the Creator, who, as it is said in the psalm, has put on praise and comeliness. How can I tell of the rest of creation, with all its beauty and utility, which the divine goodness has given to man to please his eye, and serve his purposes, condemned though he is, and hurled into these labours and miseries? Shall I speak of the manifold and various loveliness of sky and earth and sea, of the plentiful supply and wonderful qualities of the light, of sun, moon, and stars, of the shade of trees, of the colours and perfume of flowers, of the multitude of birds, all differing in plumage and in song, of the variety of animals, of which the smallest in size are often the most wonderful, the works of ants and bees astonishing us more than the huge bodies of whales. Shall I speak of the sea, which itself is so grand a spectacle, when it arrays itself, as it were, in vestures of various colours, now running through every shade of green, and again becoming purple or blue? Is it not delightful to look at it in storm, and experience the soothing complacency which it inspires, by suggesting that we ourselves are not tossed and shipwrecked? 
what shall I say of the numberless kinds of food to alleviate hunger, and the variety of seasonings to stimulate appetite, which are scattered everywhere by nature, and for which we are not indebted to the art of cookery? How many natural appliances are there for preserving and restoring health? How grateful is the alternation of day and night? How pleasant the breezes that cool the air? How abundant the supply of clothing furnished us by trees and animals? Who can enumerate all the blessings we enjoy? If I were to attempt to detail and unfold only these few which I have indicated in the mass, such an enumeration would fill a volume. And all these are but the solace of the wretched and condemned, not the rewards of the blessed. What then shall these rewards be, if such be the blessings of a condemned state? What will he give to those whom he has predestined to life, who has given such things even to those whom he has predestined to death? What blessings will he in the blessed life shower upon those for whom, even in this state of misery, he has been willing that his only begotten Son should endure such sufferings even to death? Thus the Apostle reasons concerning those who are predestined to that kingdom. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also give us all things? When this promise is fulfilled, what shall we be? What blessings shall we receive in that kingdom, since already we have received, as the pledge of them, Christ's dying? In what condition shall the spirit of man be, when it has no longer any vice at all, when it neither yields to any, nor is in bondage to any, nor has to make war against any, but is perfected, and enjoys undisturbed peace with itself? Shall it not then know all things with certainty, and without any labor or error, when unhindered and joyfully it drinks the wisdom of God at the fountain-head? What shall the body be, when it is in every respect subject to the spirit, from which it shall draw a life so sufficient as to stand in need of no other nutriment? For it shall no longer be animal, but spiritual, having indeed the substance of flesh, but without any fleshly corruption. CHAPTER Twenty Five. The foremost of the philosophers agree with us about the spiritual felicity enjoyed by the blessed in the life to come. It is only the resurrection of the flesh they call in question, and with all their might deny. But the mass of men, learned and unlearned, the world's wise men and its fools, have believed, and have left in meagre isolation the unbelievers, and have turned to Christ, who in his own resurrection demonstrated the reality of that which seems to our adversaries absurd. For the world has believed this which God predicted, as it was also predicted that the world would believe, a prediction not due to the sorceries of Peter, since it was uttered so long before. He who has predicted these things, as I have already said, and am not ashamed to repeat, is the God before whom all other divinities tremble, as Porphyry himself owns, and seeks to prove, by testimonies from the oracles of these gods, and goes so far as to call him God the Father and King. 
far be it from us to interpret these predictions as they do who have not believed along with the whole world in that which it was predicted the world would believe in for why should we not rather understand them as the world does whose belief was predicted and leave that handful of unbelievers to their idle talk and obstinate and solitary infidelity for if they maintain that they interpret them differently only to avoid charging scripture with folly and so doing an injury to that god to whom they bear so notable a testimony is it not a much greater injury they do him when they say that his predictions must be understood otherwise than the world believed them though he himself praised promised accomplished this belief on the world's part and why cannot he cause the body to rise again and live for ever or is it not to be believed that he will do this because it is an undesirable thing and unworthy of god of his omnipotence which effects so many great miracles we have already said enough if they wish to know what the almighty cannot do i shall tell them he cannot lie let us therefore believe what he can do by refusing to believe what he cannot do refusing to believe that he can lie let them believe that he will do what he has promised to do and let them believe it as the world has believed it whose faith he predicted whose faith he praised whose faith he promised whose faith he now points to but how do they prove that the resurrection is an undesirable thing there shall then be no corruption which is the only evil thing about the body i have already said enough about the order of the elements and the other fanciful objections men raise and in the thirteenth book i have in my own judgment sufficiently illustrated the facility of movement which the incorruptible body shall enjoy judging from the ease and vigour we experience even now when the body is in good health those who have either not read the former books or wish to refresh their memory may read them for themselves end of book 22 chapters 20 through 25 recording by darren l slider fort worth texas www.logoslibrary.org